Golf, the royal and ancient game to some, a good walk spoiled to others. As one of the most influential figures in golf history, Bobby Jones explained, quote, One reason golf is such an exasperating game is that a thing we learn so easily forgotten, and we find ourselves struggling year after year with the faults we had discovered and corrected time and again. The same sentiment applies to golf course architecture. Golf originated on the east coast of Scotland in the 15th century. In the early days, players would use a bent stick or club to hit pebbles over sand dunes. As golf increased in popularity, courses were established, but the holes were generally laid out based on the reasonable routing of the natural terrain. With advances in equipment, and in particular the golf balls themselves, players could hit the ball higher and longer. These advancements presented challenges for golf course architects. In 1927, writer and famed golf course architect Max Baer lamented about the state of play as follows. What we are witnessing today is not any high degree of skill in stroking the ball, but the mere control of physical power in hitting it. The inordinate distance the ball can now be driven has caused in golf architecture a very definite infirmity of principle, as all deductions from quantity values are apt to induce. Instead of being an art where the medium penalty is used to create ideas for intelligent application of skills, golf architecture has become a system of penology. We are locking up this wild desire for distance, just as we cage wild animals. In order to challenge modern golfers, architects built longer holes with bunkers, dog-leg holes, and other challenges to penalize the golfer who failed to hit the perfect shot. These new courses created a risk-reward system for golfers, almost taunting them to attempt the most difficult shots, even at the risk of a lost ball or a stroke penalty. These changes in golf course architecture also coincided with changes in golf course development. Developers created master-planned communities, golf course communities, in which residential homes were constructed on or near the course itself. Charles Fraser, a pioneering developer of golf course communities, was quoted as saying, quote, He could sell all of the waterfront land in Hilton Head, but his other developments never would have been made possible without golf courses creating value on the interior of the property. Golf courses became a vehicle to increase the value of land and to develop and sell residential homes for a profit. But what happens when modern golf course design, which encourages players to take risks, clashes with modern methods for financing golf course construction via golf course communities? One such case occurred in Kingston, Massachusetts. A golf course known as Indian Pond was constructed in the midst of a residential housing community known as Indian Pond Estates. The governing documents for the community authorized the developer to quote, create, operate, and maintain a golf course. Eric and Athena Tenzar bought a home on the dog leg of the 15th hole of the course. Soon after they moved in, the balls came fast and furious. Hundreds of golf balls hit the home and backyard. The broken windows occurred with such frequency that the Tenzar stopped replacing the windows and instead covered them with plastic. Tensars could not even send their children into the backyard without wearing protective equipment. After their pleas for help to the course fell on deaf ears, the Tensars filed suit in Plymouth County Superior Court 
the case was tried to a jury under theories of trespass and nuisance. Would the Tenzars hit a hole in one at trial? Or would the jury view their claims as out of bounds? This is Tenzar versus Indian Pond. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, Boston-based trial lawyer at Burnkoff. Today, we're discussing a case at the intersection of golf course construction and golf course financing. With us is Bob Galvin, a trial attorney who represented the Tenzars, the homeowners in this case. Welcome, Bob. Thanks for joining. Good morning, Bob. So let's not bury the lead here. You won an incredible jury verdict, $100,000 for property damage, $1.4 million for emotional damage, about $5 million in total when you factor in interest. Indian Pond has predictably, perhaps, appealed, and the Supreme Judicial Court here in Massachusetts took the case, which is highly unusual for the highest court to take a case on a jury verdict. Now, one of the main issues at the SJC will be whether there existed an easement built into the governing documents, which permitted the golf course to use the Tenzars property for purposes of errant balls. Now, Indian Pond contends that the easement, which I sort of cited in the opening, the one that allows the operation of the course, impliedly or implicitly allows the type of errant shots experienced by The Tensars. Now, I read the case out of Georgia that Indian Pond relies upon. And in that case, there was an express reference to, quote, errant balls, which is, of course, not present in the documents that are at issue in your case. But clearly, something was permitted by the governing documents because even the trial judge found and held that. There was some kind of an easement for players to actually go on the unimproved portions of the Tenzar's property to actually recover their errant balls. So my question to you is, what is the scope and extent of the easement at issue, if any, if there is an easement? And how do you see this issue playing out at the Massachusetts High Court? There were two original documents that are kind of relevant here. One is an original Declaration of Protective Covenants and Restrictions that was created in 1999 after the approval of the initial subdivision. And then there was an amendment to the Protective Covenants from 2001. And what the Indian Pond Country Club was claiming in this particular case is that the original covenants and the amendments to the covenants create a easement which is implied for the Tenzar's property to be subject to the right for them to hit errant balls on all portions of the property and precluding any trespass claims. And as we claimed at trial, the original covenants and restrictions 
by the express terms only related to certain lots, not including the Tenzars lot, which was an excluded lot. And then the amendment in 2001 specifically included my client's lot as what they called a golf course lot, subject to certain express easements. And one of those easements was the right to retrieve errant golf balls from the unimproved portion of the Tenzars property. And that was the same restriction that was applicable to all the other golf course lots, which are lots that abutter or adjacent to the golf course. Interestingly enough, that same amendment reserved to Indian Pond the right to grant easements to the golf course to favor the orderly and necessary operations of the golf course. And at trial, I elicited testimony from Mr. Tonsberg, who was the principal of Indian Pond Country Club, that in fact, prior to the lot being conveyed out to third-party ownership, there was no easement beyond that which was contained in the amendment, recorded or reserved or granted in any way, shape, or form. So I think that formed the basis for our thought process at trial and the judge's ultimate ruling on the issue of the nature of the easements, which was a ruling that the judge made in the case. So if there was an express reference in the amendment to allow players to traverse the unimproved portion of the backyard to retrieve errant balls, why does that not necessarily include the right of players on the course to hit the errant balls into at least the yard itself? We argued at trial that Implicit in the right to retrieve golf balls from the unimproved portion of the yard would be the right to hit balls in there. I mean, that's ordinary, logical. There would be no need to have an ability to retrieve if there were no balls expected. But we also argued that given the way restrictive covenants and easements are interpreted, that you can't expand that right to extend it to other areas where there were no express rights to retrieve golf balls or alternatively, even the right to expect golf balls to trespass. And that basically what was going on here was this golf course required more land than they ever right to use. And they were, you know, at, at one point, these lots were in common ownership. These lots could have been restricted in the manner that they were in Georgia with express easements extending to all portions of the exterior lot. And you mentioned the Georgia case, I'm very familiar with that case because it came up at trial, and it's come up in in briefing. You know, they're very clear there. The developer reserved three easements there. One was to for errant balls to hit any portion of the lot. Second of all, the right to for golfers to retrieve golf balls on all exterior portions of the lot. And thirdly, the right or I guess the restriction on the ability to bring a lawsuit if there was any damage caused by errant balls. So they were very very clear restrictions. And I, and that's what I found as I've received other calls from other people that are concerned about golf balls hitting their property when they live in a, in a community like this. It's more often than not the case that the developers reserve those rights in a very express way. Uh, and, uh, you know, in fairness, that then someone gets to make an intelligent decision about whether they want to purchase property or not. And in this particular case, you know, the Tensars were not golfers. They saw no evidence that their home, which is actually set back a couple hundred feet from the golf course, would in any way be impacted by the flight of golf balls that were 
out of bounds. There was no evidence of any damage. Apparently, it was known to the builder of the home and to the golf course because there'd been a prior incident and an interaction, but there was just no evidence of it. And, you know, given the distance, they thought their home was a golf course view lot, but they didn't realize that their house is very much a part of the golf course. And when you when you understand a little bit more about how this golf course and this particular hole were played and how the course encouraged it to be played, you understand that this wasn't a null. They weren't playing this hole in the way it was designed to be played, but have actually altered and recommended and encouraged a different way to play the hole, and that's by cutting the corner. And when you cut the corner of this home, which was not the way the golf course designer intended, this house is located clearly within a safety cone, which is commonly accepted by golf course designers as an area that you don't locate any structures. And I can explain that more if you you need to know more about the safety cone. We're going to come back to it because I, I do have a question about it, but I, I think that that goes to, you know, the, the system of, of penology, they call it in, in golf course design and architecture, which is that, yes, it's a, it's a dog leg, but if, if the dog leg is exceedingly long, it, it encourages players, like you were saying, to try to hit through it, to try to cut that corner so that they have a much shorter second shot to get to, you know, to get to the green and, and to sink it in. And, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a good golfer, but I, but I've been on a few courses. I've, I've tried that myself. And I think common sense would, would dictate that you wouldn't want to put a house there. And, and I guess that brings me to, you know, really my, my next question, Bob, which is, which is the builder here. You had mentioned that there was at least one incident during the construction in which a golf course hit the, hit the home or, or, or hit the construction site. Perhaps the builder, perhaps the course should have anticipated more just knowing the layout of, of this particular hole and the way that players tend to try to hit over or cut the corner of dog legs. And given that in Massachusetts, you know, new home constructions include an implied warranty of habitability. And I highly doubt that a home that is subject to a barrage of golf balls could be deemed to satisfy the implied warranty. It seems like you had some pretty solid claims or at least viable claims against the builder. And I know that the builder was included at, at some point in this lawsuit. Can you tell us what happened with any claims that you may have brought against the builder? Yeah. The, so the builder in this particular case was at one point a party to the case spectrum. We brought a claim initially that uh, you know the builder had some knowledge, didn't convey that knowledge. There was an element of fraud in that. The builder retained counsel, filed a motion for summary judgment, basically claiming that the language of the purchase and sale agreement protected them and there was no right to bring this claim. And they were actually successful in getting some of the claims discharged on a dispositive motion. There was no interlocutory appeal. So we were going into trial with some very nominal surviving claims based on an express warranty. And those claims were settled before trial. So that left Indian Pond as the only remaining defendant. And, you know, we tried the case on a trespass theory. So the other big issue on appeal 
is is really the size of of the verdict and in particular the size of the emotional damages portion of the verdict. So Indian Pond says that under Massachusetts law, in order to prove emotional distress type damages, you need some objective manifestations of physical harm. And then on top of that, you need some expert testimony to back it up. You know, maybe you were upset, Tenzars, but that's not enough to support an emotional distress claim, particularly not one in the amount that that you received here. You need something, in other words, you need something clinical and you need something supported by a doctor. Now, that is certainly a requirement in order to recover under the tort of negligent infliction of emotional distress. But you say it's not required under these circumstances. Why? Well, first of all, there's a distinction between negligent infliction of emotional distress and trespass, which is an intentional tort. And my main thrust has always been to argue that the standards for proof of emotional injury are different for intentional torts than they are for negligence-based torts. And in this particular case, getting right to the to the merits of the issue, was never a case about negligent infliction of emotional distress which, as you indicated, requires both some physical manifestations of emotional injury and or medical treatment in order particularly to justify, you know, a significant award of emotional distress. Those have never been the requirements for intentional torts. Those are only the requirements that are applicable to intention. Those are only the requirements that are applicable to negligence-based torts and never to intentional-based torts. Notwithstanding that, I think it's important to note that in this particular case, you know, the jury instructions that were given were actually very simple, straightforward emotional distress instructions. There was never any mention or request by Indian Pond that the jury be instructed on the basis of negligent infliction of emotional distress type emotional distress or any mention of a requirement for physical manifestations or medical treatment in order to recover for emotional distress. So one of the issues that we've raised and will be including in our argument to the Supreme Judicial Court was there's a waiver. Notwithstanding that, I think it's pretty clear that there's a good reason for having different standards for intentional torts as opposed to negligence-based torts because of the Maybe the suspect nature of emotional distress that sometimes can be attributable when there's just a negligent-based injury or an injury arising out of some negligent conduct. You know, this is a case where, uh, contrary to what Counsel for Indian Pond has probably claimed, there were some pretty significant emotional distress damages. And those emotional distress damages were plainly evident to the jury that watched my clients testify and explain what it was like living in this house for four and a half years. They're a younger couple. They're not complainers. They probably internalized a, a tremendous amount of the emotional distress they had. I'm sure some of their immediate friends and family knew what they were going through, but they didn't announce it to the world. They kept it to themselves and they and their children kind of endured it for you know, four and a half years. And when it came down to testifying, really didn't have to prep them all that much because they were able to clearly 
incredibly articulate what it was like to live as a prisoner in your own house. And not only were they prisoners in their own house, they weren't even safe inside their own house because golf balls, in this particular case, crashed through their windows, their living room window, their kitchen window, their daughter's bedrooms, their two young daughters, their bedrooms on the second floor of their house. Those windows were broken, glass shattered and spread all over their living room furniture, their children's toys, their, their flooring. And when it shattered, these windows shattered all the way across the room. And it happened on multiple, multiple occasions. Now, Indian Pond sites, well, there was only eight windows broken. Well, some of those windows were broken on multiple occasions. These were double pane windows. This was a brand new house built in 2017. I think most people understand that this house was not built to, you know, a hundred years ago and was uniquely susceptible to, to, to damage. This is a new home with state-of-the-art materials. And even our client's expert testified that if tempered glass was used, it wouldn't prevent the force of a golf ball from breaking the windows. Maybe you've just sort of answered this next question, but as I reviewed the case, in some ways it seemed like a textbook negligence case. I mean, as you heard from my introduction, as we've been discussing, this, this home was really built right in the line of fire. The whole were reconfigured, as you'd mentioned, and as I believe it eventually was, at least that's what I picked up from the briefing materials, all of this could have been avoided. But because Indian Pond failed to act for so long, after having significant knowledge of the issues, these balls kept hitting the home and the backyard and kept harming the Tensars. Now, that sounds like negligence to me, but I don't know that I saw a negligence claim asserted in this case. Why or why not? We brought this case initially against Indian Pond on a nuisance and a trespass theory. We did not bring it based on a negligence-based theory. I brought the case basically on a trespass theory because I think of the favorable law that relates to these circumstances. There's a case, Hennessy versus Boston from you know the 20s, that dealt with a ballpark in the city of Boston and a storefront that was across the street from the ballpark. And that's Tennessee versus Boston case started a line of cases and some rationale that says when you need more land than you have to accommodate the, the, the playing of a game on a, in a ballpark and it's causing damage, that is a trespass. Now, in the 60s, there was a case called Fenton versus Quabog. It was an SJC case. It harkened back to the Hennessy versus Boston case. And it basically said that to the extent that the ordinary use of a golf course requires land beyond the course boundaries to accommodate the travel of errant balls, the propulsion of golf balls from one property into another is a trespass. We relied upon that case in bringing the trespass theory in this particular case. In addition, in the 90s, there was an appeals court case called Amaral versus Couples, very similar to the Fenton versus Quabog case. And the court reaffirmed that in that particular case, that it, this is a trespass when errant balls travel beyond the bounds of a property. And interestingly, there was an, an additional nuance, and that is in that particular case, the golf course was there first and the home was built second. There was a defense offered by the golf course in the couple's case or the golf course management company 
that there's some type of a defense that the golf course was there first and the home came second. And Judge Green from the appeals court affirmed that, and then the, the view of the panel in that particular case, that there's no such defense in a trespass case of coming to the trespass where they would be in a nuisance case. Interestingly enough, the Amaral versus Couples case also talks about the equitable remedy that would be applicable, and it was applicable in this particular case, and that is the homeowner, if they prove that there's been a trespass, is entitled to, in addition to the full panoply of legal damages, equitable rights to cause the golf course to change the way the golf is being played on the golf course so that the trespass is abated. And the Amaral case also says that sometimes that cost and expense is infinitely more than maybe even how someone would quantify the damages on the other side, and that's just tough luck. So that's kind of the legal framework that we brought this case under. And Indian Pond was basically trying to distinguish those cases on the basis that, well, those other two cases weren't. As, as a result of a common theme development, therefore they don't really apply. But I don't see anything about the common theme in this particular case that would lend to a different result. And, uh, and I think it's very clear that this property isn't really a golf course abutting lot. This, this whole, this property is actually, given its location, very much inbounds and within play. And that's why they're getting such damage to this case. And it's plainly obvious to me. I think, you know, hearkening back to the trial, I'll, I'll never forget it. We're about to charge the jury. And I was asked by my brother counsel if I intended to argue a specific number for emotional distress. And in Plymouth County, I think it's got a pretty good reputation for juries that are notoriously conservative on, on damages. As a matter of fact, I've heard countless stories of how notoriously cheap a jury could be in Plymouth County. And I, it told my brother that I thought the jury would get it right. And whatever the jury found was acceptable to us. So we didn't argue a number as we had a right to do to the jury on emotional distress. We asked them to assess the severity of my client's emotional distress and how it impacted them. And they're the ones that came up with the number, not us. And, uh, you know, this was never about the money at the beginning. This was about solving a problem that only the golf course could solve. Because no matter what we did on our property, we could never construct a net that was high enough or wide enough that would prevent golf balls from entering my client's property. Because my client's property is situated at a lower elevation than the golf tee. So even if we were to put up a 60-foot or an 80-foot net, it's so simple to hit a golf ball higher than that with almost any club that you have in your bag other than a putter, that you really can't ultimately protect this house because the house and the property are basically are part of the golf course. I, I think the golf course knew it. I think the golf course and the developer in this particular case decided that they'd take a risk here. They clearly knew before this lot was sold to my clients that they had a problem and they just all decided not to say anything about it. It, it frankly, the, the lot never should have been sold. It should have been retained by the golf course because the golf course needs it. They were utterly indifferent to the plight of the Tenzars. And I think that was uh, clearly evident to the jury. You know, the, the fix in this case 
that my clients were willing to accept before they involved counsel was so simple. Move the tee, you know, 50 feet to the left where the car path is located. You will then, you know, knock off, you know, 99% of any potential golf balls. The Tenzars even admitted at trial that if this was once or twice a year, they'd be the last people to complain. But this is a circumstance where it happened 651 times in four years. And the damages were extreme. And I think even the average person can appreciate when a golf ball will snap the balustrade on a deck with PVC, what force is coming in there. And Mr. Tenzar, I think, probably gave probably the, the, the best anecdotal story about what it was like living there when he described filling up his daughter's kiddie pool, not being aware that the house was in play, about to place his infant daughter in the in the kiddie pool when a golf ball came smashing into that kiddie pool. And he related that to the jury. And that's what they were dealing with. The force of a golf ball, I'm not a uh, expert in that. And I don't know that there are many people that could actually say with uh, certainty what the force would be. But if it can break hard PVC plastic balustrade on a deck, I can't imagine what it would do to a body or the body of a young youngster or, or a toddler. So, but that's the type of circumstance that they lived with for four and a half years. Wow. So let's talk about the jury. This is the last question. Um, and in particular about panel voir dire. For those of you listening outside the nor- Northeast, voir dire, panel voir dire, which basically allows attorneys to pick a jury the way you might see on on TV, has only been allowed in Massachusetts for a few years now. And even then, not every judge allows it. From what I can tell from the docket, there was a motion or, or possibly two motions for it, and, and it was allowed here. Assuming that I'm correct, Bob, tell us, you know, essentially tell us how it went. You know, what was your approach heading into it, your strategy, and what was your overall experience with the panel of Wadir? Well, my personal experience is, is someone that's tried a number of cases to a jury is I always give the jury a lot of credit. They're sitting there volunteering their own time. They haven't used an excuse to try to avoid their, they're sincerely interested in trying to help. And I think it can be extremely insulting to question someone's integrity. So I'm always very hesitant to ask a lot of in-depth questions that might infer that someone would be less than candid or fair or equitable when they're volunteering their time in this way. And I'm not suggesting in any way, shape or form that my my colleague was any less sympathetic to those types of issues. But in an effort to really make sure that there was no inherent bias in this jury, he engaged in a fairly extensive inquiry to the jury about whether they had formed any opinions, any bias, were worried about, I mean, obviously there were probably some golfers, probably some people that had never played golf. There were, this house was an expensive house when it was sold in 2017, it was purchased for $750,000. The developer in this case was, you know, by any stretch of imagination, someone that had been pretty successful. I think Bernie Fleming wanted to make sure that they didn't hold that against the developer, that they had been successful that they owned a golf course, that a golf course, you know, can make a lot of money. He he was very thorough, in my opinion. I thought he was very fair with the jury. I, on the other hand, took the minimalist approach that you don't ask a lot of questions. His questions probably would have flushed out some of the things that I would have been concerned with anyways. 
And uh, I, I asked for a few questions of the jury because, you know, they got the basic questions from the judge as they were being seated. We had the opportunity to exercise peremptory challenges. I, I did in one particular case, I, I think I remember a real estate agent that might have done business in that, in that community. But the voir dire wa went, you know, a good hour, hour or so with a bunch of questions. And uh, I think it worked out fine in this particular case for both of us, because I think we were all satisfied that we had a jury that was going to be fair and impartial and uh, would not act out of bias or prejudice in any way, shape or form. And we both explained that to the judge after voir dire that we felt we had that type of a jury. Bob, congratulations on such a tremendous jury verdict and best of luck to you with the SJC. Thank you very much. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you are involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bernkofflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments, on Twitter at Legal underscore Judgments, and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in Judgments.